0: It's called, What Then Should We Do? We're in Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 20 today. If you want to be turning there in your scriptures at home. Luke chapter 3. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and Father, we thank you for being such a good, good God. Father, we ask you to give us understanding of your word, to open our minds to your scriptures, to help us to to know clearly what it means and how to live it out so that we can apply it to our lives. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your offer of, of forgiveness to us. Father, help us during this time to, to reach out to our loved ones, to let them know that we're thinking about them. And Father, that you would help us to, to reflect you the best that we can. Father, we trust you with all of our life and with all of our needs. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, today's sermon, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 3. The main point that I think that God wants to teach us today from this sermon is this, if you want to write it down. Those who are forgiven produce fruit consistent with repentance. Those who are forgiven produce fruit consistent with repentance. So let's jump right in. Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, while Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Atyria and Tricontus, and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, God's word came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the vicinity of the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now this is a big deal. It may not catch us as a big deal growing up here in the United States, um, but at the time, this would have been a really big deal that John was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness. Of sins. Because he was Jewish. They're in Israel at the time. This is 2,000 years ago. And at that time, if you wanted to be forgiven of your sins, it was clearly spelled out in God's word how you were to be forgiven. That you could not be forgiven without a sacrifice. And God had spelled out exactly how you were to perform sacrifices to be forgiven of your sins. And so it was all spelled out. And God had given these instructions to Israel through Moses about 1476 years before John goes out preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So keep in mind Israel other than except for when they were in exile in Babylon and Assyria Israel For almost 1,500 years have been performing sacrifices day after day after day in order to be forgiven of their sins. And after 1,500 years of this, John the Baptist comes along and he goes out into the river and he says, if you will come down here and repent of your sins... I will baptize you in this river and you will be forgiven without an actual sacrifice of an animal because we're looking because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Messiah is almost here and the Messiah is going to save you from your sins. So this would have been completely against everything that the religious system of the day that the Jewish religion believed. This would have been big, big, big news. Now, I want to keep Im- help, help you understand that this mas- message that John the Baptist was preaching, although it was different than what the Jews had, had been taught from the Scriptures for 1,500 years, that you had to perform an anim- animal sacrifice, it was the same message that Jesus preached. Matthew 3, verses 1 and 2 says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near so this is what john preached repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near and then jesus after john the baptist was thrown into prison matthew said that from then on jesus began to preach repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near so matthew says that both john and jesus preached the exact same message repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near Repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. They preached the exact same message. John didn't preach a different baptism than Jesus. John preached baptism for the rep- of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, which was completely different than every, every, everybody believed at the time for, for 1,500 years almost. That was completely different. And Jesus comes along and preaches the exact, exact same message. So this is what Luke said that John preached. Luke said he went into all the vicinity of the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, after Jesus was crucified, resurrected, raised from the dead, and then ascended back to heaven, after all of that, Luke says at that point, this is what Jesus taught. If we jump to the end of Luke chapter 24, verses 45 to 47, we read, Then he opened their minds, Jesus opened the disciples' minds to understand the scriptures. He also said to them, This is what is written the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at. Jerusalem. Notice what he said. He opened their minds to this understand the scriptures, to be able to understand clearly the scriptures. And he taught that repentance for forgiveness of your sins would be proclaimed in his name, in Jesus' name. So there's, there's two elements right there from the very beginning. There's the two elements that you are to repent to be forgiven In Jesus' name, you have to repent and you have to believe. You have to turn from sin and you have to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So when Jesus went around and he preached to repent and believe, if you jump to Mark chapter 1 verse 15, it says, Jesus taught, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. He was preaching the same message that John was preaching. Now this message, that you could be forgiven of your sins through repentance and faith in Jesus, again, stood completely against how the Jews had been worshipping God for the past 1400 years. Because without making a sacrifice at the altar by a priest, then there was no way for you to be forgiven. So just imagine how different John and Jesus' message was or would have been that you could have forgiveness through repentance and faith in one sacrifice for all time. Not constant sacrifices to atone for your sin, but that you could have faith in the one sacrifice that would atone for your sin for all time. If we pick back up in Luke chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, we read, As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley will be, valley will be filled, and every mountain and hill will be made low. The crooked will become straight, the rough ways, ways smooth, and everyone will see the salvation of God. And verse 7. He then said to the crowds, "Who came out?" He then said to the crowds who came out to be baptized by him, "Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath?" Now notice, John was not trying to tell the crowds what they wanted to hear to become popular. He told them what they needed to hear. John would have stood in stark contrast to someone who pandered to the people to create a following. He did not wear nice clothes. He did not eat nice food. He did not go to wealthy people's parties. He did not speak only encouraging words to make people feel good about themselves so that they would like him. He saw that people were in danger and he warned them that everyone will face judgment before God and that we will all be found guilty because we have all sinned and are evil. But God has provided a way for us to be forgiven. But it's not through our race or ethnicity, as many many believed at the time. It's through repentance and faith on an individual level. Every individual would have to choose for themselves to repent and believe. Luke 3, verses 8 and 9. Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. And don't start saying to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So, John made it crystal clear. That if you don't repent yourself, even though you were a Jew by birth, you would be cut down and thrown into the fire. It doesn't matter that your roots go all the way back to Abraham. He made it very clear that every individual, regardless of lineage, that doesn't repent would be cast into hell. Verse 10. What then should we do? The crowds asked him. Now keep in mind, he had already told the crowds how to be saved back in verse 3. He said that he went around proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So he'd already taught them that they had to repent to be forgiven of their sins. That was what they had to do. So then Luke includes the next section for us. It has three groups of people asking what they should do. The first group... They the asked, what then should we do, it says, are the crowds. In other words, just everyone in general. <clears throat> what should everyone in general do if they want to produce fruit consistent with repentance? And this is what John said. He replied to them, the one who has two shirts must share with someone who has none, and the one who has food must do the same. You see, you can say that you've repented and believe. You can say it. But John is saying it doesn't matter what you say if what you say is not true. So he lets you know what the life of someone looks like who truly does repent and believe. They actually make sacrifices for others. Because when you truly repent and believe in Jesus then you will receive the Holy Spirit and you will be born again. You will be made alive spiritually and you'll be changed into a new creation. Your heart of stone will be removed and it will be replaced with a heart of flesh. And so you will look out not just for yourselves, but for others. You will care more about them and their salvation than you will about yourself and having more, more, more for yourself. So what does it look like for the general crowd of people who repent and believe? Well, it looks like people who love their neighbor as themselves. So what was the main thing that God was trying to teach us from this passage? That those who are forgiven produce fruit consistent with repentance. So then the next group that asked John what they should do is the tax collectors. Verse 12. Tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they asked him, Teacher, what should we do? Now, tax collectors were considered traitors. They were Jewish citizens who collected money from Jews and gave that money to the Romans, and they kept a lot for themselves. They were despised, and many didn't believe that tax collectors would be saved. So the majority of the religious leaders probably would have responded by telling them to abandon their jobs as tax collectors and ask God to forgive them of taking money from them and giving it to a pagan enemy government who is oppressing God's people. That is probably what they would have expected. But this is what John said. He told them, don't collect any more than what you have been authorized. That's it. He didn't tell them to quit their jobs. He didn't tell them to end any cooperation with a pagan enemy nation that oppressed God's people. He just said, be honest. If the Roman government said the people owe a certain amount of taxes, then just collect that amount of taxes and no more. Don't be dishonest. Love your neighbor as yourself. So what's the main thing that God is teaching us in this passage? That those who are forgiven produce fruit consistent with repentance. And so we come to the third and final group that asked Jesus what they should do. Some soldiers also questioned him. What should we do? Now, based on the situation at the time... Rome was occupying Israel. Rome gave a lot of freedom to Israel to how they could live out their daily lives. But they had Roman appointed kings and governors and soldiers stationed in Israel that ruled the nation. And Israel would not have been allowed to have their own army. So it is also highly unlikely that they would have been allowed to serve in the military within their own country as well. Because then, if they did serve in the Roman army in their own country, then they could have formed a rebellion. So implicit in this question is the fact that these soldiers were almost certainly Romans, or at least not Jewish. Foreigners. Pagans who were stationed in Israel in order to maintain their dominance over Israel and to squash any potential uprising. And notice what John said. And notice what he didn't say. How was a Roman soldier to repent and believe in the Jewish Messiah that would soon come and be given a kingdom that he would reign over forever? How would a a Roman soldier repent and believe in a Jewish Messiah king? He said, Don't take money from anyone by force or false accusation and be satisfied with your wages. He was not to extort or bribe people for money. He was to be honest and to turn from sin. Notice what John did not tell them. He did not tell them that they must renounce their allegiance to Caesar. John did not tell them that they must lay down their swords and refuse to ever kill anyone again. John did not say that in order to repent and serve God that you cannot serve in the military. John simply said in order for a Gentile soldier to, who serves a pagan enemy, in order to repent, God wants you to love your neighbor as yourself. To be honest, in all three groups, John addressed the most common sin that each group was guilty of. The most common sin that the general people are guilty of is greed and selfishness. That's why Jesus talked about it more than anything else. Therefore, we should give to others in need. The most common sin that tax collectors were guilty of was taking more taxes than they had to give to Rome so that they could get wealthy themselves to steal from the people. Therefore, they should not take more money than they have been authorized to take. And the most common sin that foreign oppressive soldiers were guilty of was bribery and extortion because they were the ones with power. Therefore, they should not abuse their powers to take money from people. Now keep in mind that not every soldier bribed and extorted people. But, every soldier did serve Caesar. And every soldier did have to kill anyone that they were ordered to kill. Bakers bake bread. Carpenters make things out of wood. Soldiers kill anyone declared by their government to be an enemy. So if their sin in God's sight was that they had to kill, then when they asked John what they should do, he would have told them they must lay down their swords. If that was their biggest sin in God's sight, then that's what John would have told them to do. At risk of life, lay down your swords. But he didn't. He said they could still be soldiers, they just couldn't bribe and extort people. There's a lot of people who need to hear that. Because there's a lot of people out there that will tell our servicemen and women that they are sinning if they serve in the military. And if that were true, then Luke chapter 3 would have been written differently by the Holy Spirit. But it isn't. And no other New Testament author said that they must lay down their swords in order to serve God. And when Paul wrote To the Romans, he actually said that the government was ordained by God and that it did not carry a sword for no reason. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7 says, Let everyone submit to the governing authorities, since there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. So then, the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command. And those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the one in authority? Do what is good, and you will have its approval. For it is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. Because it does not carry the sword for no reason. For it is God's servant, an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. Therefore... You must submit, not only because of wrath, but also because of your conscience. And for this reason, you pay taxes, since the authorities are God's servants, continually attending to these taxes. Pay your obligations to everyone, taxes to those you owe taxes, tolls to those you owe tolls, respect to those you owe respect, and honor to those you owe honor. Notice what Paul said through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Because there are many who are anti-military and anti-gun who never in a thousand lifetimes would write these things to other Christians as the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to do. He said in verse 1, he said, government authorities are instituted by God. In verse 2, he said, "Those who resist their governing authorities are opposing God's word, God's command, and will receive God's judgment." 3 Government rulers are God's servants for your good. 4 Governing authorities, as God's servants, carry swords to avenge those who do wrong. 5 you must submit to those authorities as God's servant. Six, you must financially support those authorities by paying your taxes and tolls. And seven, you must emotionally support those authorities by paying them your honor and respect. Now, my question to you is, if God doesn't believe any of this stuff, Then why on earth did he inspire Paul to write this to the church in Rome? Keep in mind, all of their authorities and rulers and soldiers served a pagan emperor who was extremely hostile to the faith. The same Roman emperor who ended up executing Paul. The guy God inspired to write this. Let that sink in for a second. God inspired Paul to write this to Christians who were serving the same Roman emperor who would execute Paul. Jesus ascended to heaven around 33 AD. Paul was a young man when Stephen was martyred sometime after 33 AD. Paul later persecuted Christians until he was converted on the way to Damascus. And we really don't know how many Years later, that was. So we have a time frame of several years. We just don't know how many years. Then, after his conversion, the scripture says, three years later, he said he went up to Jerusalem. And then 14 years after that, he went up to Jerusalem again. So, at minimum, we are at least up to around 55 AD. At minimum. When he went to Jerusalem and met with the apostles the second time, and then he had more ministry after that. Why is that important? Because it means Paul, Paul wrote the epistle to the Romans, what I just said, he wrote it to the Romans during the mid to late 50s, possibly the early 60s AD. The Roman emperor, from 54 AD to 68 A.D. was a man named Nero Claudius Caesar. Emperor Nero assassinated his stepbrother. Then he tried to poison his mother several times. Then he had, because the poisonings didn't work, then he had engineers try to create a collapsible ceiling in her bedroom that would fall on her in her sleep. But word got out and she found out before they were able to construct it. So then he had a ship built that would break apart in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea while she was on it, which it did. But his mother survived that murder attempt also by swimming to a nearby island. So then Nero finally claimed that she had tried to assassinate him and he had his soldiers go club her to death on the island. He murdered two of his wives, one of which he kicked to death while she was pregnant. This is, this is the emperor that we're talking about that was ruling Rome when Paul wrote this letter. He then burned a huge portion of Rome to the ground and he blamed it on Christians who he hated. And Tacitus, who was a Roman historian who lived from 56 to 118 AD, said that Nero substituted as culprits and punished with the utmost refinements of cruelty a class of men loathed for their vices whom the crowd styled Christians. In other words, Tacitus said Nero, who burned Rome down, blamed it on Christians. Vast numbers were convicted, not so much on account of arson as for hatred of the human race, and derision accompanied their end. They were covered with wild beasts' skins and torn to death by dogs, or they were fastened to crosses, and when daylight failed, were burned to serve as lamps by night. Tacitus said this, who lived from 56 to 118 A.D. about Nero. That is Nero. Extra-biblical history also tells us that Peter had to watch his wife be executed by Nero. The same Nero that threw Christians to the beasts for everyone in the arena to watch get torn to pieces for entertainment and burned Christians on crosses as lamps to light the way to the city at night. This Nero was the emperor when the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write the epistle to the Romans, telling them the seven things that I mentioned earlier. That government authorities are instituted by God. That those who resist their governing authorities are opposing God's command and will receive God's judgment that government rulers are God's servants for your good, that government authorities as God's servants carry swords to avenge those who do wrong, that you must submit to those authorities as God's servants, that you must financially support those authorities by paying your taxes and tolls, and that you must emotionally support those authorities by paying them your honor and respect. So all that to say, that it doesn't matter who the government is or who the leaders of that government are. If you had to stop serving in the military to serve God, then he would have said so. He wasn't afraid to say all the other things that he said that you would have to give up. And he wouldn't have shied away from saying that. He did tell you That if you deny him before others, that he would deny you before God. Therefore, we read all of these Old Testament, I mean the New Testament Christians in this early first century, second century, and throughout history, how they all go to their deaths not denying their faith. Why? Because Jesus said, if you deny your faith, he will deny you. So if you had to do this to be saved, he would have told you. Nero and the way the Roman government treated Christians when Paul wrote his epistle was far more evil than Christians have ever faced in this country in our lifetimes. So those who say that you can't be a serviceman or woman in our country and have a clean conscience before God would never have told Paul to write any of these things to the Christians in Rome under Nero. They never would have done it. They never would have written these things to Christians who were living in Rome under Nero. But the Holy Spirit did tell Paul to write these things. So my question is, whose voice are you going to listen to? I'm going to listen to what God says and not what man says. If you are a service member or used to be in the service... I want you to know that you don't have to feel guilt for serving our country and for following orders. God can forgive you of anything you believe you shouldn't have done while in the service. Our military is serving the greatest country on the face of this planet. And you shouldn't be ashamed by anyone for your service. You should be honored by everyone and respected by everyone because God said so. He said, respect to those you owe respect and honor to those you owe honor. And he was talking about government government authorities. People who are upset with me for saying that don't realize it. But the truth is, they're not upset with me for saying it. They're really upset with God for saying it to Christians in Rome under Nero. They're really upset that Christians under Nero that they should submit to him and honor him. They can't understand why God would have said to Christians under why God would have said that to Christians under such an evil leader. They can't understand why he would tell them that. And Peter, who was also crucified by the Roman emperor, God inspired him to say this. In 1 Peter two thirteen through 17 he said, Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to the governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone, love the brothers and sisters, fear God, honor the emperor. Again, God inspired both men who would be executed by a pagan evil emperor to submit to him and honor him as those ordained by God. Now, does that leave us with questions as to how this could be true? How could God ordain an evil pagan leader and expect us to honor and submit to him? Yeah. Yeah, there will be lots of questions as to how it could be true. But we don't obey God only on the things that God commands us if we understand why we should. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways know Him and He will make your paths straight. Trust God and do not rely on your own understanding, but follow Him, whether you understand or not, and He will lead you down the straight and narrow path. Because if you only obey God when you understand why you should, and you finally come to a place of agreement that you should, you really aren't obeying Him. You are completely autonomous. You don't obey anyone. You do what you want to do. And when you finally agree that you think you should do what God says, then you do it. That's not obeying God. That's obeying yourself. That's you deciding for yourself how you're going to live. And maybe you agree with God a lot, but when you don't agree with Him, do you obey Him anyways? Or do you do what you want to do Until you agree with him. You see, if you have to understand why God tells you to do something you disagree with before you will obey him, that's called relying on your own understanding. And when you do that, you're not acknowledging him in all your ways and you're not trusting him, you're doing the opposite. You see, you have to obey God when you understand why he tells you to do something. And when you don't understand, that's called trusting him. That's the example we see with Abraham. He didn't understand why God had told him to take Isaac up the mountain and sacrifice him. But he trusted him and he obeyed him. Even though you and I, if we're going to be honest, wouldn't have. You and me, if we were in Abraham's shoes and God had told us to do it, we would say, I don't understand how, I don't understand why, and therefore I'm not going to obey you. I'm not going to do it. But God stopped him and he told Abraham that he himself would provide the sacrifice at some, at that same, on that same mountain of his own son one day for us to be forgiven. There is no possible way that Abraham could have figured that out on his own. If Abraham had to understand why first, he would never have gone up that mountain. And we would not know how to be saved by faith. Because it was Jesus' sacrifice on that mountain that made a way for us to be forgiven. It was his sacrifice that made a way for us to be forgiven. But God has decided that His forgiveness will only be given to those who believe Him, who trust Him, who place their faith in Him. Just as Abraham did. Genesis fifteen six Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Now I'm only about halfway through in my sermon so I'm going to stop here I'm going to wrap it up we'll pick this back up next week we'll finish this out but I just want to come back and just say and encourage all of our service men and women because veterans have a very high suicide rate in our country they have seen a lot they have faced a lot they have done a lot of things that they are ashamed of. Those images and thoughts and feelings and things that they've been through haunt them. And many believe, because many hold the perception that they can't be forgiven of what they've done. They can't be forgiven. They can't have, be at peace with God. That God is upset with them. And it's not true. If you have served in our military, or if you are serving in our military, or if someone you love is serving or has served in our military, I want you to know that God did not say that you are marked off the list and that you can't come to him. He did not say that you must renounce your allegiance to your country, that you must lay down your sword in order to come to him. He didn't say that. He, As a matter of fact, what he did say is he said that everybody else, all of us, are to honor and respect you. That's what God did say. He didn't say that you had to be ashamed of yourself. He told us that we had to honor and respect you. And so I want you to know that we all sin. And I have no doubt in my mind that you sinned while you were in the service just as we all sinned while we were not in the service. We all have sinned and have sinned. But I want you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God loves you and will forgive you of all sin that you've committed. And he doesn't ask you to to lay down your swords if you're currently serving in the military. All he asks you to do is to be upright, to be honest, to not extort, to not bribe, to not take advantage, to not abuse your authority, to not abuse your power. To be honest, to to walk with him and he will guide you. And I pray that if you're in the service and you're struggling, that you would reach out to one of your military chaplains. And if you're not, then I pray you would reach out to me or or somebody who has been in the service who has coped with those struggles. Because I pray for you. I pray for you and I pray for our country. I want you to know that God loves you and I love you. And that you can be right with God today. All you have to do is make a commitment to turn from sin and to follow Him. It's the same commitment that everybody out of the service has to make. Everybody in the service has to make. No matter who you are, regardless of your economic status, regardless of your race, regardless of your position in life, it doesn't matter. Everybody has to do the same thing. We all have to repent and believe. And so I ask all of you, whether you're a service member or not, anybody is listening to this message, I ask you, have you repented and believed and placed your faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as the one-time sacrifice for your sins, for all past, present, and future? If not, there is nothing that is stopping you from making that decision today, right now. To just Tell God, I know I've sinned. I know I can't make things right. I can't write the past. We all wish we could, but we can't. We cannot cover up our sins. And that's why we need God to save us. Because we can't make things right. We can't earn righteousness with God. There's nothing we can do. We need Him to save us. And He said that He will save us. And that He has already performed the, give, Himself given himself on a cross as the one-time sacrifice for our sins, that if we would just repent and place our faith in him as the one-time sacrifice for our sins, who has risen from the dead, is alive today, and whom we will serve, he will forgive us right now. The Holy Spirit will come to live within you and will change you and make you into a new person and will give you everything you need to get through the remainder of this life. And I don't know how long that is for each and every one of you. But I pray that you won't put off any more time and that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt today that you have made a commitment to God that you are going to turn from sin. Because sin is the reason that you are separated from Him, the reason you're guilty, the reason that you're going to be condemned on the day of judgment. Sin, the only reason that you will turn from it, make a commitment to turn from sin... You will live for God and that you believe that He will save you because you cannot save yourself and you trust Him to save you and He will do that. He will come to live within you right now and He will change you from the inside out. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and Father, we could try every day from now on to infinity. We could never, ever, 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 ever thank you enough for loving us so much that you would come and perform the perfect sacrifice on our behalf by living the perfect life and dying in our place so that we could be forgiven. And all that you ask is that we would repent and believe. Father, I pray that if there's a single person who wants to do that, that they would make that decision right now, that they would turn from sin and they would trust you for the rest of their lives. Father, I pray that they would reach out to us. Let us know the decision that they've made so that we can help them get plugged into a church. Father, we all need you. We need you. Many of us realize that we need you more now than we ever have before, and that's a good thing, that we realize that we need you. But Father, we know that we can trust you, and we thank you for being able to have that confidence in you. We love you, Father, and we thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' holy and precious and eternal name we pray, amen.